We're going to wrap up this uh, series today, the series of uh, the difficult questions. And I know some of you have been very patient and endured it because you don't have these questions. But I assure you, you know people who do. So we've been looking through these questions, and what we found is that they are good questions. And today's is probably the best of all. It's certainly the deepest of all. And it is essentially the question of evil. It is the question, um, uh, if God is... Um, if God is all-powerful and loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, and and the way I would the way I would phrase that um, is is this: I would say, why doesn't the Bible end on page four? Right? Uh, Cain, Cain and Abel. The, the the story of Cain and Abel. It's the second thing we come across in the Bible. There's the story of creation. There's uh, Adam and Eve and their fall. And then immediately when we when we find out they have children, the first one kills the second one. So. Why doesn't the Bible end there? That would be the place where God could eliminate all the evil from the world, right? He could he could simply uh, squash Cain like a bug, and instead he doesn't. So uh, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He was treacherous. He took him out into the field. Let's go out in the field today. Um, but then when he was there, treachery. He attacks him and kills him. And God asks, where is he? And he says, he says, um, I don't know. Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? And God says, the blood of your brother calls out to me from the ground. The ground is cursed for you. You may no longer farm. You must be a wanderer on the earth. And Cain says, my punishment is too great. Anyone can kill me. And so God not only, not only does not kill him himself, but God puts a mark on Cain to warn anybody who might try to kill him. So Cain leaves the Lord's presence and settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Why doesn't the Bible end there? Why doesn't God simply put an, uh, put an end to evil? Why doesn't he nip it in the bud and be done with it? That is the, the deepest question that the Judeo-Christian tradition wrestles with. Why is there evil in the world? We're in this series looking at the good questions. We talked about the virtuous heathen, the the idea that there are people who uh, are good but don't know Jesus, and we we saw how God's um, intention for them uh, is is not stated in the Bible, but there are reasons we should have hope, and at the same time we should be busy with the work that God has given us. We talked about truth claims, that that all the different religious traditions and philosophies in the world are like blind people looking at an elephant, and there is no one person who can stand off to one side and say, no, you, you fools, don't you realize it's an elephant? Because we are all, all blind people feeling the side of the elephant. And the best thing we can do is be honest about the part we do feel. If there's ever going to be any, any agreement that, that it is an elephant, it's by people saying honestly what it is that they experience about the truth. We talked about faith, and faith is the idea that, that faith is the, is the arena in which God works. We have hope out there for, for ourselves, for other people, for the world as a whole. We have hope out there, and faith is the place between them. Faith is that thing that we hope for, the, the, the thing that spans the gap from where we are now to what we hope for, and that is the arena in which God works. Um, and last week we talked about wrath. We talked about the way that, that um, God is revealed in the scriptures uh both in the, in the hebrew scriptures as a god who um who gives us who gives us problems we are we are concerned with the things we see in the hebrew scriptures yet even there we see things that are admirable 
and we are cautious against an imperialistic view of another culture, the, the culture of our great, great, great ancestors from three or 4,000 years ago, those Iron Age barbarians that Sam Harris talks about. And at the same time, God is also revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is a mystery sometimes how those two can be reconciled. So we talked about wrath, and today we're going to wrap it up by talking about evil, the question of, of evil. If God is all-loving, I mean all-powerful and loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? And this question is basically uh, betrays a, um, an understanding behind it, which is this. God must either be helpless or unloving or fictional. This is the, this is the, the, the trilemma that is, that is posed for people, that either God is too weak to do anything about it. God is up in heaven wringing his hands and saying, I wish they wouldn't fight, but there's nothing I can do. Or God is unloving. He's on vacation. He's taking a break. He doesn't really care what's going on. It's none of his affair. You know, you guys do whatever you want. I don't care. God is either helpless or unloving. Or the, the new atheists say, God must be fictional because you won't, you won't, you won't agree with us that, 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 that God is uh, helpless or you won't agree that God is unloving. So you say that God is fictional. I want to, I want to clarify a term first. I want to talk about loving. People usually phrase it in terms of loving. And the problem with loving is we don't know what loving means. I mean, you know, ask 10 people, you'll get 11 or 12 answers what loving means. So I'm going to clarify it a little bit. Um, for our purposes, by love, I mean this. This is, this is a definition that C.S. Lewis gives. He wrote a book about the four loves, and he says there's four loves, really five if you count I love pizza, right? You know, where you really just mean I like, I enjoy, right? So there's four kinds of love. So um, uh, if, you, if you're interested in pursuing this, you can read more here. But this is the, 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 the quick takeaway. C.S. Lewis says love is not an affectionate feeling. Love is a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Uh, a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good. So that's a little bit uh, heavier sounding than, than, um, than love. So if you prefer love, you can stick with love, but that's kind of the, the, the way I'm going to interpret this question because I don't know what somebody means when they say love. So I'm going to say if, if God is all-powerful and good and wishes good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And um, I want to begin just with the the idea that the, the the hanging in the background. Remember, hanging in the background is this idea: you have you have created this situation where if God is loving and uh, good and um, and powerful, then there wouldn't be suffering. So therefore, God must be fictional. And that always puzzles me because because people who say it say that there is no God, but there is an absolute standard of good. How can, how can that be any more incredible to believe than the idea that there's a God? That somehow everybody on earth down through the years should be held to the same standard of what is right and what is wrong. And you don't know what people a hundred years from now is going, are going to say that standard is. So people are saying that, that the standard that is in my head, what is good, is the absolute standard. And if there is any suffering in the world, then it's because there's an unloving God who doesn't adhere to the standard in my head. How is that any more credible than the idea that there's an invisible sky fairy or whatever they talk about, you know, your friend up in the sky? Um, how is that any more believable than the idea that there's a God? I've never understood that. So the first thing, why apart from God do you think good has any meaning? There's a, there's a 
I was going to say great. There's a terrible couple of chapters at the end of the book of Judges where we see how there's there's just this period where where uh, Israel has degenerated into chaos. It's this it's this spiral of doom, and the people of Israel get worse and worse and worse. God gives them a judge, and things are better for a little bit. Then it gets worse and worse. And the last few chapters are just horrific. And at the end, the writer sums it up this way. He says, "In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes." And we know that that's true, right? If you think about the worst decisions in you, in your life, the, the things you most regret, those are the things that at the time, they seemed like a good idea. They seemed like probably the best option that you could, you could have. Maybe the circumstances were not great, but, but you don't deliberately make bad decisions. And yet, you've got decisions you regret in your life, and so do I. This is, this is the problem with the idea that there's some absolute standard of good. Who defines what it is? I mean, who defines what good is unless it's an absolute standard? So, where apart from God do you think good has any meaning? And yet, at the same time, Christians are willing to stipulate, yes, um, we will stipulate that God is sovereign and good. And, and our definition of good means the things that God does. So we stipulate that. And the, the scriptures talk about this um, in the, in the um, Psalms. Uh, we read, our God is in the heaven and he does as he wishes. There's nothing um, in heaven or on earth. There's no created thing that can defeat God. There's nothing that can stop God from getting what he wants. And that includes, you know, uh, the devil. You know, there are, there are religions that talk about this, this um, a mortal combat between the two, the, the, the good God and the bad God, that there's some, some force, battle between these forces and, and neither one can gain the upper hand. The Hebrew scriptures are different. They say absolutely God is utterly sovereign. There is nothing that can challenge God, including forces of darkness, that, that we do not believe that there is some, some combat that, that God is incapable of winning. So we believe God is sovereign. God speaks about it himself in Jeremiah. With my great strength and powerful arm, I made the earth and all of its people and every animal. I can give these things of mine to anyone I choose. God speaks of his own sovereignty. And in Deuteronomy, we read how God is good. He is the rock. Uh, his deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he? God is the standard of goodness. When we want to wonder uh, what does it mean to seek someone's good, it means the things that God would seek for him. So, so God is good and God is sovereign. We, we stipulate that, um, but we do wonder why anyone would think that the absence of, of a good God would be the obvious choice. So, what are the sources of suffering? If God is good and if God is sovereign, where does suffering come from? Our answer in the scriptures is that the sources of suffering include cosmic evil forces and human sin. Now, I didn't say that the cosmic evil forces are greater than God. They are lesser forces. But we do believe from the scriptures that there are cosmic evil forces that are against us. Uh, Paul writes in the book of the Ephesians, he says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul says that that person who's driving you crazy may not be a bad person, that there's probably something else at stake. So our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're not truly, ultimately, your enemy. Now, they may be a jerk. They may be giving you all kinds of trouble. But Paul says you have to assign the ultimate source of the trouble somewhere else. 
We read about it at the time Jesus is betrayed. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who's one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. So somehow or another, in some way, Satan prompted Judas to do, uh, to, to, to betray the Lord. And yet at the same time, the scriptures don't say it's always, you know, the devil made me do it. It says there's something wrong with us too. Um, in the, uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, we are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, not just our, the ones we're ashamed of, but even our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Everybody has experienced this, where you do something good, and then in the back of your head, you, you hear yourself saying, what a good person I am. You know, the, the, there's this idea of, of, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm so wonderful, uh, where even, even our good deeds are tainted with this kind of thing, ooh, I hope somebody saw that, because look how good I am. So, so uh, there is this notion that even our righteous deeds are corrupted somehow. Paul writes about it in Galatians. He says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. He's saying there's something bent, there's something broken in us, that this, this sinful nature wants to do evil. When we follow the desires of our sinful nature, the results are very, very clear. And then this long laundry list, and it's got everything from sexual or immorality and uh, sorcery all the way down to um, uh, uh, wild parties and ambition. So um, it's the, the whole gamut. It's not everybody is equally bad, but everybody is equally badness. Paul says that that sinful uh, nature of us um, wants these things. And Paul says he's not immune. He says, I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Paul says this is this is the human condition. It's not just the cosmic forces that are aligned against it. There's something wrong with us. So where does evil come from? Those things. And and I said include. I said these are the sources. The, the sources include these things because this is ultimately a mystery. Jesus himself, um, uh, some people in, in the book of Luke, uh, Luke records how uh, some people said, oh, you're a Galilean. Did you hear about the Galileans that, that Pilate killed? Pilate, they came here to Jerusalem to sacrifice, and Pilate killed them. And Jesus says to them, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus says, is that why they suffered? Not at all. He's saying you cannot directly assign the suffering that people face to their moral character, that there may be other reasons at stake. One time Jesus sees a blind man, and his disciples say, well, blind people suffer. Their life is much harder. And it was a whole lot harder then, but it's still hard. They say, why is this man suffering? Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or was it his parents' sin? The disciples ask that question. And Jesus explicitly says, neither one. He says it was not because of his sins. It was not because of his parents' sin. Jesus won't give us that simple reason of saying the reason that people suffer is because they did something bad or their parents did something bad. Jesus says that there is a mysterious character to suffering. So we know it includes cosmic evil forces. We know it it includes the thing that's broken or bent inside of us. But Jesus says there is more to it. There's something mysterious about evil. But... There is, behind this, there's an assumption. When, when you're talking to, a, to an atheist, when you're talking to an atheist who brings this question up, um, they, they usually have this idea that Christians think 
that good people don't suffer. And there's no reason that they should think that. Christians have never argued that God prevents injustice and suffering. Christians have never argued this. And the most prominent example, of course, is Jesus. Jesus walked about a stone's throw away, knelt down and prayed, and said, Father, if you're willing to take this cup of suffering before me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his arrest and execution, Jesus suffered. And certainly he suffered the next day on the cross. Jesus knew what it was to suffer. Christians have never said that being good and virtuous somehow excludes suffering from the world. It doesn't mean that God is missing if Christians have always said that sometimes good people suffer. Jesus continues, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Christians have never believed, and they've had plenty of reasons not to believe, that God keeps keeps people from suffering um, uh, injustice. Jesus gives a hint of one, of one of the reasons or a reason that people have often looked at is this parable he tells us in Matthew 13, he, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, Jesus is, uh, describes a man who, who sows good wheat in his field, and yet an enemy comes along and sows, sows um, uh, uh, weeds in it as well. When the weeds and the, and the, and the wheat come up, the, the, um, the master's servants, they say, what should we do? Should we pull up the weeds? And the, the owner of the field says, no, don't, because you will pull up the weeds. And then Jesus goes on to interpret that and saying that God has his reasons, that in some way our lives are entangled with the evil around us, that the people that God is going to save and the people or the, the forces that God is going to condemn are somehow entangled, and it would be premature to pull them up at this point. So he says, don't do that now. But the time will come when those weeds will be gathered up and cast into the fire. Later on, as the movement advances in the later in the first century, uh, uh, Peter writes a letter to uh, people who are already suffering, and he says, "Even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you." Christians have never been of the belief. I mean, there's just no evidence for the thought that Christians have proposed. If you Keep your nose clean and you're a good boy or a good girl that God will bless you and you will never see any kind of trouble in your life. We don't believe that God keeps even good people, even people that God loves, from, from having to suffer. So where does this notion come from that somehow that, that God believes, uh, that, that God owes us this, um, this uh, protection from, from um, suffering? That's not something we've ever argued. However, what Christians have argued is that by God's grace, we can resist and endure suffering. The, um, the, uh, the brother of James, uh, the brother of Jesus, James writes this, he says, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, even the cosmic forces, that there, there is a limit to what they can do. He says, he says, resist the devil. You have it in you to resist the devil to some degree. Paul says, never pay back evil with evil. Don't let evil conquer you, but you can conquer evil by doing good. That evil has limited uh, resources, that you cannot you cannot be overcome um, always by evil. And one of the ways he says to do that is to fix our thoughts on what is true, honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. He says, think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. He says, he says fix your mind on what is good. You know, think about the outside of the donut, not the inside. Think about what is good. And that that's one way we can, 
we can resist evil. And if we can't resist it, we can at least endure it. Paul, Paul writes himself about his, his experience. He says, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not, not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. He says, we can endure. And elsewhere in the letter to the Romans, he says, why? He says, we can rejoice when we run into tr- problems and problems and trials, for we know they help us develop endurance. He says, ultimately, it's a good thing for us to be, um, to, to suffer. He says, because endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. He says that even evil has a purpose in God's economy. So he says, we can resist and we can endure. But that's a hard thing to swallow. Who wants, who wants to do that? Well, the good news is God doesn't ask us to do it alone. God joins us in suffering. God doesn't say, you know, trust me, it's good for you. Take this bitter medicine and you'll be, you'll thank me in the morning. God says, here, let me come down and be part of it with you. The writer of Hebrews says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He said, I'll go first. He says, I know, I know. It is hard to accept that God has a purpose for the suffering in your life. But he says, I'll go first and I will lead the way. In the, in the book of uh, Isaiah, the prophet says, when you go through the deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burnt up. The flames will not consume you. The Apostle Paul, before he is Paul, when he is still a persecutor of the church, he is riding his horse to Damascus one day, and he is stopped in his tracks by a blinding light. And Jesus says this. He says, he fell to the, uh, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Saul asks. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. When Jesus, Jesus says, when the church, when the people he loves are persecuted, that he is persecuted. He is aware of what's going on. He experiences it. Um, even in his earthly absence, Jesus knows what's going on. He is part of that suffering. He is in that suffering with us. And he tells us how. He says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you will also live. When I am raised again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He says, we are connected. That by his Spirit, we become part of the body of Christ. And so when we suffer, he suffers. But the best news of all is this. God joins us in suffering until suffering ends. That the scriptures promise not that we will never suffer. Christians have never argued that, but it does promise that suffering will come to an end. That this is not an endless cycle. We do not believe in a universe where there's just a wheel that goes around and around and sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. You, you go up the pyramid or you go down the pyramid and it never goes to any end. Christians believe that suffering will end. In the book of Revelation, the, the seer has this vision of the people who are under, who, who are this great multitude of people who are um, holding, holding palm branches and singing a song of praise to God. And he asks who they are. And uh, he is asked who they are. And he says, I don't know. And the angel who's speaking to him says, they are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. 
For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Scripture tells us that there is an end, that, that, that time is not this endless cycle of birth and rebirth, but it is going somewhere. And the place it is going is to a place that has no suffering. We are not at that place now. Christians don't argue there is no suffering. Christians argue that people can endure suffering and that for those who are martyred, those who die in the course of that, God has been a part of that. God knows it's happening and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are so blessed. We don't know what kind of suffering people face um, even today and certainly not down through history. But suffering troubles us. Suffering, we have in our heads an idea that there should not be a world full of suffering. And so when we see the suffering in the world, we say, what kind of God are you? You must be weak. Um, You must not care. But we see that you do care. You care so much you sent Jesus. He joined us in the suffering. He went first. He went ahead of us. And he said, this is something you can get through. Even death cannot end my love for you. So, Lord, help us Help us to endure the suffering that comes our way, Lord. And help us to be concerned about people who do suffer. Help us to do what we can to push back um, the suffering in this world. Help us to be like those early Christians who, in the face of suffering, did right. We ask your blessing on our ministries of compassion because we know there are people right in our community who suffer. And we ask you to multiply the uh, efforts of our partner agencies, the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance and the United Methodist Committee on Relief and all the other denominational programs that help to alleviate suffer suffering, Lord. Um, and Lord, help us always to look forward to the day when it comes to an end. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.